This morning, during the songs we were singing, the Lord uh, brought an encouragement to Nancy. Nancy, would you come and speak to the body what God spoke to you this morning? Come on up here. um, As we were singing, I just really felt um, when we sang that um, underneath his wings I sing for joy, thinking about the protection of the Lord, his his greatness and his power and his um, just how he he provides that shelter to us when the world is raging and all kinds of awful things are going on around us and we're bombarded by by uh, <clears throat> so many negative things in the world we know that we have protection in the Lord and just the comfort of that and knowing that in that safe place we can rejoice and just really relax in the Lord and love the Lord thank you father amen what a truth you know one of my favorite songs for years has been under his wings (laughs) what a great great truth Also, let me say, before we begin the word this morning, concerning Karen Price, you know, Dillon Institute has been such a significant ministry, and it's going through a bit of hard times right now. So this woman needs all the wisdom God can give, as well as those with whom she works. So let me encourage you this week to make it a point to spend special time praying for Karen and the Dillon Institute. May God show that he's in charge and accomplishing things to his glory. Last Monday morning, in my early morning prayers, it's my custom to begin praying for the churches, starting up Moultonboro, New Hampshire, and Weirs, and Manchester, and on and on and on, ended up in Seattle, and then on through Illinois and Indiana, and back to Connecticut. But a real focus of my prayer that morning was, as would true, I suppose, for any preacher, God, what word do you want brought to this congregation on this Sunday morning? And that's always a very important prayer for me because only God knows who will be here and only God knows what each individual needs to hear, something no human can ever know. And as I was praying, I became aware of the fact that my bedroom was being flooded with beautiful moonlight. And after a few moments, I rose from prayer and went to the window and began to stare out at the moon. It was beautiful, and the light was flowing. It was peaceful. Something happened in my heart. Now, I know I'm kind of strange, but when I have experiences, I hear music, And I begin to hear the first movement of Beethoven's opus number 27, number 2, which you probably know as a moonlight sonata. I heard this peaceful, beautiful music, and something was just happening so wonderfully in my soul. After a while, I went back to my prayers, but every time I tried to pray, something else came into my mind. I was invaded by a remembrance of what had happened Sunday morning to me. As I was pulling off of Harvard and getting on the BA Expressway, on the entrance ramp, 
I looked out my left bedroom mirror to see if any cars were coming, and the sun was so bright it blinded me. I couldn't see. And I turned to look and still couldn't see because the sun so blinded me I could not bear to look at it. You cannot stare at the sun without having injury to your eyes. And then I thought about this. The beautiful moonlight that was touching my soul was the same sunlight I was could not observe coming from the sun. That same sunlight reflected beautifully off the moon, touched my soul. I could spare it looking at the moon, but not looking directly at the sun. And then I began to think about the Heavenly Father and Jesus. And then I remembered this episode in Exodus 33. You remember in Exodus 33 describing God speaking to Moses. It says this, And God spoke to Moses face to face, Fani el Funim, as a man speaks to his friend. And as Moses became comfortable in this intimate relationship with God, he said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. In other words, you speak to me, let me see you. Interesting, the Hebrew word that most of our English versions render glory is kebedeka, which really means fullness, it means abundance. And when the Jews translated the Hebrew into Greek for the Septuagint, when they came to that word, they chose the Greek word doxa, which means glory. And so most of our English versions today follow the Septuagint. But it has the idea of let me see you and let me see you in your fullness. And God said, you cannot see my face. For no man can see me and live. And you know the story how God had him go in a cave and all kind of uh, anthropomorphic language is used. as says you can see my backside, my glory as it passes by and so on. No man can see me and live. Scripture many times affirms that. Paul wrote to Timothy concerning God, who alone possesses immortality, dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. And do you remember in the prologue to his gospel in John chapter 1, John wrote this, No man has seen God. What does that mean? <laughs> Well, that means every time in the Bible that we read about someone seeing God, they are actually having a vision rather than truly beholding God. Think of Isaiah and Isaiah 6.1. That's always been one of my favorite passages. I thank God if you'd ever let me have that experience, I'd never sin again. And that was uh, Isaiah's response. Woe is me. I'm an unclean man of unclean lips, and I'm a part of a people that, wow. But it was a vision 
for no man has ever seen God. And Paul, God said to Moses, no man can see me and live. Not only that, remember to the Samaritan woman, she was saying, you know, well, should we worship in Mount Gerizim where we Samaritans worship? Or should we do what the Jews say and worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus said, well, really, here's the truth. God is a spirit. It's not whether you're there or whether you're here. God is the spirit and they that worship him in spirit and in truth. Now think about that. God is a spirit. As a spirit, he has no corporeal form. There's nothing for light to reflect off of so a human eye can see. Not only that, a spirit has no dimensions. So not only can no man see God and live, there's no way we could see him anyway. (laughs) Because God is a spirit. But as the TV commercials say, but wait, (laughs) there's more. (laughs) John said, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. And so Jesus Christ, the God-man, so to speak, is the only man who had ever seen God. And with the arrival of Jesus, a whole new dimension came into the world, a means whereby mankind could see God and live. Jesus said, he who beholds me beholds the Father, John 12, 45. And you remember, in the upper room as Jesus was speaking with the apostles about his departure and they were wrestling with things and Philip said, Lord, just show us the Father, that's enough. And Jesus said, have you been so long time with me, Philip, and you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. In John chapter 10, there is a scene in which Jesus is in Jerusalem. He has just spoken a word about the sheep and the shepherd and the shepherd and the sheep's fold. And he said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. Others who are not of my flock hear my voice and they run. And then a group of Pharisees surrounded him and began to push him to say, Are you the Christ? Tell us. And Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And they were so angered they almost stoned him to death. But these are marvelous thoughts for us. I am the Father one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. So just as it is impossible for us with our human eye to stare at the sun without some very strong filters, no one can see the God and live. But on the same token, we could see the beautiful light shining on the moon 
And so the beautiful light of God is reflected in the person of Jesus, whom we can behold without fear or danger but delight. The Apostle Paul rightly wrote, It is a trustworthy statement. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And that's right. But he also came for another reason. He came to reveal the Father to us. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Neither does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son reveals him. One reason Jesus came into the world, in addition to save us from our sins, was to reveal the Father to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then that beautiful passage in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, God spoke long ago in many ways to the fathers, to the prophets, in many portions In these last days who has spoken unto us in his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and then this line, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Do you want to see the Father? Look at Jesus. We can view him with joy, with delight. Maybe here. Beethoven's Opus 27, number two, the first movement. (laughs) Peaceful and beautiful to behold our Lord. When we look at Jesus, we see the temperament of the Father. We see his loving heart. We see his character. We see his nature. If you want to see the Father, look at Jesus. You know, we're so blessed, aren't we, to have the four biographical records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so we can read about Jesus. Peter wrote, we don't get to see him today. (laughs) He's ascended, he's gone. And Peter wrote this, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, speaking of his second coming. But here we are now. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We can't see him today, can we? (laughs) Wouldn't it have been wonderful To have been one of the disciples of Jesus, to actually seen his facial expression, heard his tone of voice, the inflection he had, how he expressed his heart for people. Sometimes I think we really misunderstand that. For instance, Matthew 23, 23, where uh, Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is uh, dealing with the Pharisees. 
So many times I've heard that read, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. I hear it a different way. I hear a broken heart. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Use a tithe, mint, and anise, and common. But you omit the weightier matters of the law. Our God, our Jesus, grieves over the lost. He grieves over those who do not follow the ways of God. Wouldn't it be wonderful to actually have walked the paths and heard his voice? Wonder what his voice sounded like. To see his facial expressions. To see the look in his eyes. <laughs> what a tender scene. Remember one time he was teaching and some mothers brought their children. The disciples said, don't bother the master. <laughs> he said, stop. Allow the little children to come unto me. I would like to have been there. I wonder if he picked some up and held them on his lap and hugged them and kissed them. I don't know. Would not that have been marvelous to be there to actually witness that scene? And when we did so, we were seeing the Father. The Father in heaven who loves us and who cares for us. But today, Jesus has ascended. And we say, the only way we can know Jesus is to read about him. You remember one time a group of Hellenistic Jews approached Jesus' disciple Philip. And they said, we would see Jesus. <laughs> And you know how the story went. That's my heart today. I would see Jesus. But he's ascended. And all I can do is read about him. But once again, wait. <laughs> there is more. The night in which Jesus was betrayed, sitting in the upper room with his disciples, he said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And then here's the line. We will come to him and make our abode with him. Wow. The Father and I will come to live with anyone who loves me and keeps my word. Think of that. The Father and Son, in some way, are living with those of us who seek to follow his word and be obedient to me. How could that be? And there is more. Prior to his ascension, Remember, the Lord Jesus appeared to many people at many different times. 1 Corinthians 16 tells us that at one time he even appeared to 500 brethren at once. And Paul said, most of those are still alive. If you want to know Jesus, go ask some of them. They'll tell you, yeah, he was, he's alive. We don't know when that happened. But Jesus had told the eleven... To meet him on a specified mountain in Galilee. We don't know what, the, what mountain it was, which one. But they followed his instructions and traveled from.
from Jerusalem up the Jordan River, passing Samaria, entered Galilee, and went to that specific mountain. And here they were. And you know the scene in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, immersing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Then here's the line. And lo, I am with you even unto, and the Greek says, the fullness of the age, the full end of the age, the Greek says. I will be with you till the end of the... How's that possible? You've gone to heaven. (laughs) How could you be with us to the end of the age? And as I say, the Greek says to the full end of the age, till the time he rings down the curtain on history. How can that be? Once again, we return to that upper room prior to Jesus going to the garden and being arrested. And he spoke many wonderful promises to the eleven. Remember, that's where he established the Lord's Supper. But the theme that you find just flowing through this discourse throughout John 13, 14, 15, and 16 is this. That after he left this earth physically, his presence was going to be manifested to them through the Holy Spirit. Time and time again he said that. John fourteen seventeen. that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him. And here's the line. Because he abides with you, but will be in you. (laughs) What a difference. Throughout the Old Testament, there are prophets, people such as David, Samuel, others. The Holy Spirit was with them. The Holy Spirit was on them. And none of them was it in them. And the apostles knew that. The disciples knew that. The Holy Spirit had been with them when they had gone to cast out demons and heal the sick as Jesus sent forth the twelve and later the seventy. But he said there's going to be something different. The day will come and it's not far off in which the Holy Spirit will not just abide with you but he is going to be in you. Not an external entity but a being that dwells within that's a quite a striking thought isn't it and then he said this spirit not just going to be temporary it'll be forever i will ask the father he will give another helper paraclete that he may be with you forever not just passing but forever that's for you that's for me not just for the 11. A few weeks later, after his resurrection, Jesus met his disciples who were now apostles. You know, really they had been disciples, but on that mountain, 
in Galilee, he commissioned them and they became apostles. And that's where an apostle means, one who sent with He gave them a commission, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. And on that mountain of olives outside of Jerusalem, he reaffirmed that commission. You should be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. But then he said, wait. <laughs> Go into Jerusalem, don't do anything until the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And they were astounded as he then left the earth and was caught up in the clouds. They went back to Jerusalem. A hundred and twenty people who had been Jesus' disciples were gathered in a room praying, and they prayed for ten days. At the end of that ten days, something that looked like tongues of fire, <laughs> was it fire? Who knows? It looked like tongues of fire began to rest upon the head of the eleven and they began to speak languages they did not know. And the noise caught the attention of the people in the street. And they said, there's a bunch of drunks up there. Peter got up with the eleven and said, these are not drunken as ye suppose. And then he preached the first gospel sermon. His first act as an apostle, he preached the first gospel sermon on Pentecost. And do you remember how that concluded? Repent and be immersed, every one of you, into the name, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And then this, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, not only you, but your children, and as many as afar off as the Lord our God shall call unto himself. That includes us, doesn't it? The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit given to us as those who have been born again, as God so instructed us and so we do receive. Four times in his epistles, Paul stated that the Holy Spirit is a possession of a Christian and it is guaranteed that he has heaven. He said that in Romans 8.16, Ephesians 1.14, 2 Corinthians 1.22 and 2 Corinthians 5.5. Back when we were involved in revival meetings, a song that was often sung, He Lives. You know the song. We sing it on Easter sometimes. And the chorus is, You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. Now, I've been in meetings where people who did not believe in the presence of the Holy Spirit active today, and they changed that nice line. You ask me how I know he lives. The Bible tells me so. Horse feathers. I know he lives because he dwells within. <laughs> he lives within my heart. He's not just a historical figure about whom I read and what I read about but experience the living God within. Individually, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Corporately, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
So wait, there's more. <laughs> if the world today wants to see God the Father, they should be able to see him by looking at you and looking at me. I'm a vessel of the Holy Spirit. I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm so flawed, I know. <laughs> so flawed. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul addressing Corinthians who were some still following the Corinthian habit of going to prostitutes. And Paul said, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. How can you join a temple of God with a prostitute? Now what that says to me is that even though I've got the Holy Spirit within, it's still up to me as to what I do with this vessel. Whether this vessel does reflect the presence of Jesus and God the Father depends on what I do with this temple. But if I live according to the guidance of the Scripture and under the leading of the Holy Spirit, oh, I pray that people who meet me for the first time do not meet Jim Garrett, but even though they're not aware of it, meet the Lord Jesus Christ. I was in a meeting a few weeks ago with a group of people. I didn't know any of them. And one man in the meeting, speaking of the person sitting next to him, he said, I don't know this man. I don't need to hear him say a word. But sitting next to him, I sense a presence that I think if any unbeliever came into his presence... He'd have to be convinced of the reality of God. Oh, I wish that would be true of me all the time. That anyone who meets me meets God. There's a song, of course, <laughs> we used to sing, Nothing in the world is called me. I would be like Jesus. Nothing in the world enthralls me. I would be like Jesus, be like Jesus all day long in the home and in the throng. Be like Jesus all day long, I would be like Jesus. What a prayer. And then when I was a child, in Sunday school, we used to sing, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wonderful passion and purity. Oh, thou spirit divine, all my nature refine. Till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. Isn't that a good prayer? And may it be true. That as the Holy Spirit indwells me, as I seek to follow the guidance of Paul's epistles and the Sermon on the Mount, and live in a manner that really reflects the character of God, and the Holy Spirit from within works to transform, and God through the experiences of life refines me more and more and more, that anyone who sees me can see Jesus, and as a result, 
see the Father. No man can see the Father and live, but all the reflected light of the Father through Jesus, the reflected light of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in us, the world can see God. And listen, the only Bible many people will ever read is you. It's important that when they see us, they see God. May the Lord be praised. Thank you.